1: Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, welcome to An honorable Profession. Thank you for having me, Debbie. We're so excited to have you, and it's such an important time to have you, so I want to dive in on all things democracy, but maybe I'll start with just a question about you and how you ended up in this role. When you first ran for office, you ran as a county clerk in, in New Mexico, doing the frontline work of election administration, so why did you decide to run for office, and why that office? It's so funny. I
2: used to tell folks when I was back when I was county clerk, you know, I didn't grow up dreaming of being a county clerk one day. You know, it's (laughs) not something folks kind of necessarily aspire to as young children, unlike firefighters or airline pilots or something, right? But I've always been interested in politics. I kind of refer to myself as a weirdo. My mom took me to vote with her when I was four years old, took me into the voting booth with her. And I think ever since then, I've been kind of interested and hooked and had more than just a passing interest in, you know, how our government works. And right out of high school, I started working on political campaigns. I interned in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. I worked my way through college and grad school on campaigns. And so by the time I was 30, I had spent 11 years registering folks to vote, telling them, how to vote, you know, giving them information about where, when, and how to cast their ballot, you know, turning out voters, coordinating volunteers, and I worked a lot with our county clerk's office, and what happened was our our then-county clerk was elected secretary of state. It created a vacancy in the office. I was transitioning out of my last job, and so I thought, you know, why not? I'll just throw my hat in the ring. Plus, at that time, there were very few young women in elected office, I saw a lot of women who were older, and I saw a lot of young guys running for office. I was a little bit frustrated by the fact that there weren't that many young women. So I thought, well, let me put my money where my mouth is. Plus, I think I can do this uh, election thing. I, I think I would be good at this. I have the skills and I have the interest. So that's sort of that's all she wrote. I, I got the appointment. I really dove right in head first and it's been a complete adventure. And now I've been running elections for almost 17 years. So <laughs>
1: there you have it. <laughs> well, I love, thank you for stepping up, by the way. I mean, I think that, I feel like it's changing. That's a, we can have a whole different podcast on uh, changing nature of elected office holders. I'm so happy to see so many young women running, but I agree with you doing this 30 years. I think it's been a long time coming for young women to feel like they can run. So thank you for doing that when you did it and stepping up. So, you know, you transitioned then, as you said, to Secretary of State, where now you're seeing the whole whole state's elections. I want to get into the, we have a lot to talk about of like how crazy it is right now, but just maybe before we get there, you had done it on a local level, really administering elections. And then that transitioned you to secretary of state where you were overseeing everything. I mean, how did that help you having done the work on the ground then being secretary of state? Was that, how did that kind of work in that transition? And and how has that informed your work as secretary of state?
2: It is extremely helpful. I mean, there is a lot that involves working together with our local election administrators, our county clerks here in New Mexico. And I I know that's the case in every jurisdiction, right, because even though my role now is more of a, an oversight, a policy making role, a, a role in providing technology and guidance and, and you know, sort of paving the way for the clerks to do their job, which is actually implementing the elections. Knowing and understanding their job is really important because I can't give them the tools and resources they need if I don't understand what it is that they need, right? What I will say is that It doesn't mean that everything I do is geared toward elections. I think it's so much of a bigger role, but I'm really glad that I had 10 years as county clerk so that I could deeply understand the election process and understand what our clerks need and the challenges that they face.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about how things have changed maybe in the last four Eight years <laughs> being someone who's involved in elections, which was probably I'm gonna I, I won't make assumptions, but a little bit making assumptions, probably more of a a sleepy role that you know it, critically important, but not a ton of attention. And obviously, we are talking now after you know the second indictment related to election interference, tampering, attack on democracy of our former president. So tell me a little bit about what that's like to be how, you know how the role has changed maybe now that there is so much more of either both an increased actual attack on our democracy, mistrust in our democracy, but also you being kind of in the spotlight on that and having to talk to people about that. Well, it has,
2: to your point, Debbie, it really has changed. And I think being in the election world, I mean, you know, every election has its own character, its own flavor. It's always has its own controversies. As an election administrator, things always pop up. There are unanticipated problems and challenges. That is not different. What is different is that the folks who are unhappy with the outcome of the 2020 election for president have decided to completely demonize election officials around the country. They've bought into this, as we call it, the big lie, right? You know, this myth that somehow... Over 3,000 election jurisdictions across the country have engaged in this mass conspiracy rate to defraud voters. And so when you're operating, when you're trying to do your job, which is already an incredibly challenging job, you're trying to implement all of these different things and balance access and security and do all of the 8 million things that we do as election administrators under this now incredibly, not only focused microscope, but it's antagonistic. And so our motives are constantly questioned, you know, we're constantly being told that we are, you know, we are corrupt and we are bad. We're trying to defraud the people of of their right to vote and their right to have their person elected. So working in that environment is extremely challenging. As as you know, Debbie, a lot of my colleagues and I have been threatened with violence for doing our jobs (laughs) in 2020 and beyond. And while that's sort of, I would say, quieted down a little bit, I know we're all sort of staring down the barrel, so to speak, of next year and going, what's going to happen? We know that there are going to be more threats. We know there are going to be more challenges. We know that we're going to have more aspersions cast at us. But I think in some ways, and this is the silver lining, I think in some ways, it almost sort of makes us even more deeply committed to the work. Because we are trying to navigate and protect our democracy through this really incredibly challenging time. What we are experiencing in this country is a threat and a challenge to our very democracy, and we are privileged to be in the position to protect it and try to steer it through this difficult time, and we are very committed to that.
1: Yeah, well, we're so grateful for that commitment, and you really are heroes. I mean, I st- say it all the time, but you and we have a couple other secretaries of state, Jocelyn Benson and Adrian Fontes, Michigan and Arizona, respectfully, as you all know, who are New Deal leaders and you all who are kind of at the top of the of the food chain, if you will, and, and, and down all the way to the poll workers and to the people who oversee local elections and count the ballots. I mean, democracy depends on citizens' engagement, right? And citizens' participating in in making the elections happen i don't think people understand how what a huge operation it is to actually to run a national right elections across the country so to have those threats and the intimidation is just so disheartening i think it's deliberate of course because i think that you know they're trying to disrupt our elections and undermine faith in democracy and undermine the ability to administer those elections so it is incredibly Frustrating. And I just, you know, thank you for the work you're doing and for staying in the fight, even you really get great personal risk to some extent. So I, you know, it's really does not, it's noticed and appreciated for whatever that's worth.
2: <laughs> you know? Well, thank you. And, and let me just say, Debbie, it's worth a lot. Those thanks really do go a long way and they mean a lot to me and to my colleagues. We don't go into this work to be thanked. You know, we don't expect to be thanked, but, uh, you know, especially under the conditions that we've been operating under the last few years, it really it goes a long way.
1: Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad for that. We are talking in the lead up to voter registration month, which is so exciting and important. And so I'm super glad you're here to do that because you've done a boatload of stuff as Secretary of State to try to help. You know, this is not just an election few months before the election or during the election. I mean, this this is work that you all do year round, and it's important to tweak things and to make sure that we're expanding the access to the ballot, that we're protecting and maintaining the security of our election. So you were able to pass a, a big omnibus group of legislation with your legislature there to, to do some of that work in New Mexico. This show, tell our listeners kind of about some of those those bills you were able to pass recently.
2: Yeah, we had a a really incredibly productive legislative session in New Mexico this year on the voting rights front. And we made some tweaks to our election code just to improve how we run elections. And basically, what we did was we sort of made permanent some of those changes that we implemented during COVID to to try to be more agile and make elections more accessible while folks were stuck in their houses and trying to keep safe. And so it's funny because I always talk to about. You know, we forget that part of the challenge of 2020 was the fact that we were running this election during a global pandemic, right? And we were having to be so creative in terms of how are we going to make sure people vote. And so I am excited that from just, you know, a purely nerdy administrative point of view, we were able to get those changes made that we really needed in that moment. But then we go, oh wow, this actually works really well for always. We would like to keep these provisions. So that was exciting. And then, you know, I think the big one, the maybe the sexy bill, right, was our voter rights Act bill. We had tried passing it last year without success. And so we kind of went back to the grindstone and made some tweaks and and brought it back again this year. And among, many other things. We now have a permanent vote by mail list here in New Mexico. A lot of states that have become all vote by mail states. So every voter always gets a ballot in the mail every election. They said, really, this is the first step is folks can just sign up to always get their ballot in the mail. It doesn't have to be everybody. It won't be everybody. But over time, when folks realize how convenient it is, right, they can just do that We also made a huge step in terms of improving how we restore voting rights to our formerly incarcerated folks in the state. On paper, our previous law was really great. It said, you know, once you've fulfilled the terms of your felony conviction, your rights are automatically restored. And it totally did not work that way in practice. It was a bureaucratic nightmare. And so we said, you know what, let's make this really simple. If you're out of jail, you can vote, right? There's some other states where you can, you know, incarcerated folks can even vote. But, you know, that was sort of the big next step. And then I think the piece that we're all really proud of as a group of pro voter folks, me and the big coalition that helped the legislators, is we have the first of its kind Native Voting Rights Act, Native American Voting Rights Act codified into law, really giving a lot more power and say and flexibility to our Native American tribes, of which there are 23 federally recognized tribes in my state, on their tribal lands to say, you know, where, when, and how folks have the opportunity to cast a ballot. And so a huge step forward for accessibility in a time, if I can just humble brag a little bit, in a time where a lot of states are moving backward on voting rights and making it harder and less accessible. So we're really proud of that work here.
1: You absolutely can humble brag. I'll just brag, brag. But really exciting and important work that, that you all did. Why do you think that it was that you were able to pass this in New Mexico when so I mean, I don't think of New Mexico as a, I don't know, I won't make assumptions. What was the secret sauce to being able to get such big changes done, do you think?
2: I mean, you know, the stars aligned this year, but they aligned because here in New Mexico over the last decade, we have been doing the deep work to elect people at all levels of government. And people say progressives. It's not, <laughs> it's not that we've elected progressives. It's that we have done the work to elect Democrats of all stripes, and we have done the work to elect people who get it. We should be trying to make it as easy as possible for people to vote. This is a no-brainer. This shouldn't even be a political question or an issue. And so if you look at our statewide office holders, you know, I was fortunate enough to be reelected last year to a second full term. Our governor was reelected. We have an attorney general who came in. We have really meaningful majorities in both houses. We don't have a single statewide officer in New Mexico that's not a Democrat. And this doesn't happen very often, but our entire congressional federal delegation is now all Democrat in New Mexico. You yeah. know, we have a history of being more of a purple state. You know That is real. And it could happen again if we lose our focus and you know, allow ourselves to get distracted. But that's where it is now, and the stars aligned, but it was that decade of really meaningful work to get good folks elected at all levels of government.
1: Before we continue with our conversation, I want to remind you that we're celebrating the release of our 200th episode and five-year anniversary of An Honorable Profession on September 21st. As we get ready for that, we've been looking back at some of the best moments in Honorable Profession history, Including this clip from conversation that Ryan and I had with U.S. Senator from Delaware and New Deal's honorary co-chair Senator Chris Coons. I hope you enjoy it, folks who are listening. I'd encourage them to realize that the the journey of public service is is not an individual pathway, but is something that is sustainable. Really, only to the extent that you've got friends and partners in that service. And I'll close by saying we deeply need people of character, people of goodwill who are willing to dive in and to make a difference, to take up the challenge of public service and to be determined and optimistic and bring their skills and their, their faith, their spirit, their personality into public service. So if there's anyone who's listening, come on in, the water's fine and we need you. And you were head, I think, immediate past president even of the National Association of Secretaries of States, correct? So, I mean, there are certainly some, we're seeing that play out in Georgia too, right? I mean, there are secretaries of state on our side who are doing the right thing as well. And I know, so I'm kind of, it's absolutely, and it just, I'm going back to saying that because I'm going back to the comment you were making about this not being necessarily, it shouldn't be a partisan issue, right? It is frustrating to me. It's kind of like the mask, mandate thing, to pick a random, you know, analogy, but it's kind of like, why is this partisan, right? You know, why is vote by mail partisan? I mean, I know that Utah is one of those states where they have a huge vote by mail program. It's a traditionally very Republican state, as people know. Republicans wanted to vote by so like why some of these things just got turned on its their head to be partisan just boggles my mind. And I'm sure you saw that at National at the Secretaries of State national group, right? Because this is people of all stripes who want to make things easier, want to make elections run smoother. This is an American thing, not a democratic thing, right?
2: I love that you bring this up because
1: so yes, I was
2: the president of National Association of Secretaries of State in 2020. That's just crazy. So it was absolutely <laughs> the most unreal situation. And first, it was so interesting when the COVID pandemic started happening. We have an elections committee in now, so those of us that are chief election officials, but really our meetings were kind of these in-person meetings at conferences. And then we'd get an email with updates every so often. Well, we started meeting weekly because we were all grappling with How do we run a lot? How do we get the supplies we need? How do we get the information we need? What are you doing in your, you know, oh, you have very limited early voting sites. Are you going to expand early vote? And we were all coming to the table and best practices sharing. And I've got a great hand sanitizer provider, you know, out of here that's willing to give free hand sanitizer, those sorts of things. But I'll tell you, in those first meetings, in those first couple of weeks, so many people were saying, we're going to shift to vote by mail. We're figuring out how to shift to vote by mail. We're figuring out how to increase both sides of the aisle because it was a no-brainer. It was like people are at home and they're stuck at home. We need to get them voted. And it was only until at that time, President Trump, I think, was concerned. I think he saw COVID as an opportunity to suppress voter turnout and try to win re-election. And so when he saw these states you know, shifting to, oh, we're gonna we're gonna get these votes in, then that's when you hear the rhetoric change. And that's when I really get frustrated for my Republican colleagues, most of whom are incredibly decent, understand elections, know what's right, but then they were forced to have to pivot on their positions on these issues too. Right. And so it just to your point, it got turned on its head because of politics and because of one person <laughs> wanted to win re-election. And and now here we are.
1: Yeah, it's just it's so depressing because it's such an American issue, not you know. But anyway, yeah, it is yes. (laughs) It's important you remind us of that, you know, because it is when history books are written, like we forget the pandemic piece. I'm glad you brought that up because it's how did this all happen? Because we were in the middle of trying to figure out how to do an election in a pandemic. Of course, things were changing and that's a a super important point. I, I wanna make sure I get to this other question for you about transparency because I know it's something you care a lot about and I think you work with the Annenberg school out of USC on some transparency communication issues. It feels to me like part of the problem and I'll defer to you is that people are not even that our elections actually run pretty well, right? And that you know and that some of this misinformation and disinformation is able to be spread and take hold because people just don't understand the process. What happens to my ballot after I send it in, whatever it is. So A do you agree with that and B if you do How can we be more transparent? How can we help people understand the process? Is that important in all of this, I guess?
2: It is. And I think, first of all, to your point, Debbie, most people don't understand the lifestyle of a ballot or the life cycle of a ballot. They nor should folks necessarily, unless they really want to know, right? You know, like anything else we do in our daily lives, it's kind of been taken for granted. Now we have this increased peaked interest in election administration, again, with an antagonistic lens on top of it, right? But so we as election officials have a couple of obligations. First of all, to provide as much information as we can in as digestible a manner as we can. And we're all kind of trying to figure out best practices on how to do that in a meaningful way that Clarifies confusion, debunks myths, and provides real accurate information. So that's really important. Trying to open up as much of our process as we can. We do and traditionally have done that anyway. But I think making folks aware of the opportunities to write, to observe, you know, at a polling place or to observe voting machines being tested before they go out to polling places, those kinds of things. But I think where we start bumping up and, and having challenges is we also have an obligation as election officials to protect the security aspects of the work that we do. Right. We don't want to hand over the keys to the castle and say, here, here's our vulnerabilities. Here's a way you can hack a system. Right. Here's a way you can figure out a back door to to make things. So I'm not going to give you that information. I'm sorry. I'm You know, that would be professional malpractice. And we also have an obligation to protect the privacy of the ballot. And that is, I think, the biggest challenge that I cannot prove to you that your ballot went through this exact particular process. What I can do is I can audit the process as a whole, and I can spot check ballots, and I can make sure that the machines counted them accurately. I think that's sort of where we start bumping up against areas of inherent non-transparency that are for a really important reason, to protect your right to keep your ballot secret and to keep our systems safe. So we're doing as much as we can to open up the process, make it as accessible as possible, invite people in. I tell people who are called election deniers, look, if you have doubts about our election process, put your money where your mouth is, come be a poll worker. Come see for yourself all of the checks and balances that go into making sure our elections are safe and secure. They rarely take us
1: up on that offer, unfortunately. Absolutely. You're making a different point, but I will make a point, actually ask a question about the poll worker piece. Are you having, we talked earlier about kind of the violence and the threat or threats of violence. Are you, are you worried about, are you having any trouble recruiting folks for the elections or are you, or are you seeing the opposite? Like you said, where you've just doubled down on your commitment to, to this work because of, you know, that how important it is right now.
2: It looks a little bit different everywhere. We certainly, I would say the pandemic probably was the biggest challenge to poll worker recruitment and retention, certainly in 2020, 2021. We have, I think there has been yeoman's work done, not just in my state, but across the country in terms of trying to bring in a new crop of poll workers, you know, folks who are paying attention to elections for the first time, maybe not taking them for granted and saying, hey, come work the polls then, please. If you're really concerned about The issue of our democracy and wanting to preserve and protect it. And, you know, one of the things I've always said is look, we incredibly value our veteran poll workers that have been doing this for decades. A lot of them are older, but they know what they're doing and they're experts at this at this point. But the reality is they're not going to be around forever. And for us to continue to have a volunteer managed election process, we need to be bringing in new folks to the process and younger people. So, you know, I think it's kind of a shifting dynamic. We are challenged. We do need more people. We do need more good people. But I do also see people rising to the occasion in ways that maybe wasn't happening before. So I think that's the silver lining there.
1: Yeah. I love that some of the I know that some new dealers around the country are thinking about making sure people can have civic engagement points or, you know, credit for high schools or something if they come work polls or anyway, it feels like there's a lot of creative work being done to address that issue you're talking about, which is kind of that generational change totally. which is really in everything and not just elections, right? I think that that's really important. As, as we head into 2024, how concerned are you about kind of misinformation, disinformation, and what tips do you have for people? Or what are you, how are you thinking about needing to combat some of that or other concerns you've got heading into 2024?
2: I think mis- and dis-info is my number one concern heading into 2024. And then just sort of the, you know, as we've been talking about all along today, the weaponization of unfactual information and how it is, you know, aimed at and toward election officials folks who are just bound and determined to believe the worst of the Democrats, Republicans, independents, and everyone else who are running elections in this country. And they really do weaponize mis and disinformation against us. And it's not even so much that it is frustrating as election officials for us to deal with that. But what I think we are more concerned about, and certainly I am more concerned about, is the effect that it has on turnout and on folks, you know, having faith and trust in the system and wanting to cast a ballot and having confidence that their ballot was counted as cast. Because the challenge is, first of all, my megaphone or any of our megaphone is not as big as theirs is, right? And their coordinated efforts to, you know, systematically reduce trust in our election process. But also, We do push back with factual information and we provide these opportunities. And I think sort of transitioning to answering your question about what do we do about it, we just have to continually beat the drum of this is the factual information. This is how it actually works. If you have questions or doubts, come see for yourself. But the reality is that we just know that there is a group of people out there so, I have a colleague, let me just really quick story to illustrate this, who is an election official. He's a Republican. He's in one of the big states from 2020. I don't want to sort of out him with his story, but he said, My own father in law thinks I rigged the election. Oh, Lord. And he says, I asked my father in law, Is there anything that I could show you? Is there any information I could give you? Anything that I could you know, if I could come up with something to show you that would change your mind. And he said, no, nothing's going to change his mind. So in reality, we have to focus on the folks who maybe have doubts, questions, concerns, but who have an open mind to getting correct and accurate information. And those are the folks that we need to invest our energy and effort in.
1: Yeah, I think that's crazy. (laughs) It's really crazy. What would my motive be? And like, and really like to your earlier point in the conversation, 3,000 jurisdictions did it. Like, I mean, it's just, it's so frustrating from a factual point if you just kind of follow the facts. But I take your point and I appreciate your point because I do think also as Democrats, sometimes when anyone says anything about any kind of question about the election, sometimes we roll our eyes and we're like, "Oh, you're you're you know just an election denier." No, there are legitimate, well-meaning, well-intentioned questions that we should be willing to answer, right? So things, you know, like what does happen to my exactly. ballot? Is this is the process. So I think it's important that as Democrats, in particular, who you know have a little more faith in the election system, that we make sure that we're being transparent. To your point, and answer those questions in the spirit in which they're asked, which is sometimes not by everybody, but sometimes just truthful questions and not kind of roll our eyes and go, oh, you just, you just don't get it, right? That's that's not helpful. And that kind of perpetuates the problem and the divisions, right? So I think that that's a really smart point.
2: You're right. The, living up to like the elitist snob label that we sometimes as Democrats get. And it is, I will admit, as an election official, and given what we have gone through the last few years, you know, it can be hard sometimes. It can be hard for me to take a breath and go, no, fair question. Right. Let let's talk about this. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: I hear you. I hear you. Maybe I will end on a on a more hopeful note. You mentioned you personally like being this whole craziness helping to you know help you double down on your commitment to democracy. Is there anything that gives you hope kind of in the larger scheme of things heading into 24 and beyond about where we are with our democracy right now? We always hear just the negative, right? I mean, particularly this this right. Few weeks with the indictments and everything else, you're just like, oh my God. But I think there's hopefulness. So, do you agree and point us to some hopefulness?
2: Totally agree. And I will tell you, what's giving me the most hope is young people. I've been fortunate enough over the course of the last year or two to have lots of different engagements and in different ways and areas with young people. I think the generation, the Zoomers, the, you know, the Xennials, whatever that are coming up are so much more aware and engaged. And totally, they're not just sort of couch potato activists. They are like real. They're, you know, look at what happened in Montana this week with those young people that sued for their, you know, right to a future based on, you know, fossil fuel production, right? Whether, I know we're talking to Democrats here, but whether you agree or not with that issue, look at them getting active and engaged. Look at the kids from Parkland and the incredible work that they're doing and the strides that they're making on controlling gun violence in this country. I am really amazed at them. I'm amazed at how aware, active, engaged and psyched they are to do and to do more. And I think we have a lot of Hope for the future with
1: that. I love that. What a great way to end that. I love that, and we'll have a different podcast. We'll talk about parenting because I know you've got kids. I've got kids, and yes, we'll have a different conversation about you know raising kids who and and I'm I'm amazed by my own kids and their knowledge and their just you know how they are and interested. And I agree with you totally, wholeheartedly that it's actually really. Does give me hope for the future. They they've got a lot of messes that they people have made that they've got to sort out. So I'm glad they look like they're up for the ch- the
2: challenge. <laughs> they sure seem to be, and they are doing something about it. And I am just my hat is off, and I'm just clapping every time I see them do something amazing.
1: I love it. Well, I am so grateful for your time, and thank you so much for joining us, Maggie. It was great to talk to you, and just appreciate again the work that you and your colleagues are doing. It's I don't think there's anything more important right now. So thank you so much.
2: Well, thank you, Debbie. Thanks. To New Deal. It's been great so far to be a new member, a new part of the organization. I'm getting a lot out of it and I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and chat with listeners and looking forward to the more to come. Great.
1: Thank you so much. Have a great day.
2: Thanks. You too. Bye.
0: An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.